Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Clicking in to my clubless pedals. Hello, listeners, greetings, audience, cycle knots, adventurers of the internet, explorers of that which makes you fast, or perhaps that which helps you reach your goals, your dream goal and objective. We are back for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. It's already the fourth week of January, and some things happened which delayed the release of a podcast, namely me and my family got COVID, so that happened. Um, I don't know if it was Omicron or Deltacron or Megatron or what it was, but um, I got my ass kicked pretty hard for about two days. I was really throttled. It was quite interesting the way it came on, actually. I'm on the rollers, by the way, in case you're wondering what that noise is. Because today's episode is about cadence, so that's why I'm on the rollers. But I woke up uh, one morning about 7, and I felt completely normal. Did a little breath work, a little meditation, a little movement, standard stuff. Had some coffee, a little breakfast. And then around 10 a.m., I started to not feel great. And I was supposed to meet a client for a hike later that day, and I was thinking, I don't know if I should hike. This may not be smart. And then by noon, I was completely incapacitated, like unable to leave a horizontal position in bed. And it stayed that way for about 48 hours. A raging, raging headache, like just life-stopping headache was my primary symptom. And just sort of general aches, uh, a lot of kidney aching, liver, liver stuff. So anyway, the subsequent days three and four were better. Took me a while to get back to full speed for sure. Uh, a lot of naps and slow moving and whatnot. And then I've crawled out of it. And now I'm feeling pretty healthy, so I'm grateful for that. And my wife got it as well. Similar experience to me. Our daughter had less symptoms than both of us. So anyway, I hope you are all healthy. And if you had your COVID experience come and go, I hope it was, well, not any worse than mine because for 48 hours, I was pretty much hating life, but it could have been a lot worse. So onward. Uh, Today, I want to talk about cadence and what it is. And this might seem like a really fundamental topic. It is a fundamental topic. It's two of the one, two of the principal components that make up power on a bike. And everybody wants more power. Everybody wants to raise their functional threshold power. It's like the whole purpose of cycling. That's why we do it. It's the only reason we ride bikes is for our FTPs. I'm being sarcastic. You know me well by now. But we do owe it to Cadence to unpack it a little bit and discuss it. So I'm going to do that. You've probably heard me tell this story before, but I got to do it again. Apparently a long time ago in a Belgian schoolhouse far, far away, a Jedi master known by Eddie Merricks, also known as the greatest 
competitive cyclist this sport has ever seen, arguably, was giving a talk at a schoolhouse and a little Belgian schoolboy said, Mr. Merckx, I want to grow up and be just like you. I'd like to win my local time trial. How do I do it? Do I push a little gear quickly or do I push a big gear slowly? And of course, Eddie replied, you push a big gear quickly. And I love this story because it very clearly illustrates the two basic components of power. Power is how hard you push on something multiplied by how quickly you push. So thinking broadly about power, we can define it as the number of watts produced in any given activity. It could be running, rowing, car pushing, tire flipping, um, crossfitting, uh, cat petting. You don't make many watts when you pet your cat, probably, uh, unless it's like a really ferocious petting session, or maybe you're brushing your cat. But I don't. That's probably not good for cats to make a lot of watts while you're petting them. But the idea is that you can manipulate the variables of how you make power by pushing on these two levers. And since they're multipliers, you can either push on one or the other or both simultaneously. So, okay, let's convert that to a bike. Force, which is how hard you push, in a circle is called torque because we're making circles on the bike, well, at least close to them, theoretically. And it's always best to pedal in circles, not squares or dodecahedrons. And so force in a circle is called torque and speed in a circle we call cadence or the number of revolutions per minute, right? And so there's three ways to make more power. You can either push harder, you can pedal faster, or you can do both. Now, the first two have little asterisks next to them, asterisks. Um, the asterisk says that when you push harder, if you want to make more power by pushing harder, your speed, your cadence has to remain the same. And likewise, when you want to make more power by pushing faster, pedaling faster, you also have to keep your torque the same, right? Because if you increase one, but the other goes down, then you, you know, depending on how the numbers work out, maybe you didn't increase your power, or maybe it went down, or maybe it went up a little bit. Those two levers have to be pressed in different ways to get the result. So, okay, let's examine the practicality of that. Notice that in the first example, if we want to increase torque while keeping the cadence the same, in order to do that, there's a couple different real world scenarios we can imagine. Let's say you're riding on a flat road at a given torque and a given RPM. And then suddenly you come to a grade, an uphill grade, a hill or a climb. And if you're riding on the flats at, we'll say 94 RPM, and then you go up that climb, and maintain 94 RPM and you don't shift, you're going to have to put out more force in the pedals, right? That's probably a pretty intuitive example. So I'm sure everyone can understand that. On the other hand, in order to do the same thing, that is to 
increase your torque but keep the cadence the same on a flat road, you would need to shift. Because if you push harder on the pedal on a flat road, you're going to accelerate. And if you don't shift, then your cadence is gonna go up. So you'd have to shift to do that. So this is where gears, gears come in really handy. And gears are the principal way in which we manipulate torque and cadence to achieve a desired power. And what's interesting about the use of gears, even though it's incredibly easy by today's standards, is that a lot of riders still, I think, use their gears wrong. That's a poorly worded sentence. I think a lot of riders still use their gears wrong or suboptimally for the result they want. We'll say that. And so this is why we have this discussion. So we can understand the relationship between torque and cadence, and you can start to apply it to yourself in your own riding intuitively and by looking at data when needed to get a concept for how you're using your gears correctly or incorrectly, right? And I'll discuss why we might be using them incorrectly or how we might be using them incorrectly and how we can figure that out. But first, let's go through this second scenario, which is if we want to increase cadence but keep torque the same. And I'm breaking these down just so we have a clear understanding of what we're talking about. So if we want to maintain the average torque over each complete pedal revolution but increase the cadence, this would mean the kind of the opposite scenario of, of our first one where the rider is cresting a climb at a given torque and a given cadence, right? And then the road starts to flatten out, not go downhill, but starts to flatten out, plateau. And so the rider might increase their cadence, but have the same force on each pedal stroke. So you would do this in a situation where you were trying to achieve a best time on a climb and the summit was the, the elevation summit, excuse me, yeah, the elevation summit was at a given point and then one kilometer later, as an example, was the actual finish line of the segment. And that one kilometer was flat. So when you got to the top of the elevation summit and you had 1K to go, you would be trying to maintain the same force on the pedals, but you would probably increase your cadence. Most riders increase their cadence on the flats relative to when they climb. Uh, probably all of them do. And that's due to some, some complex interactions of physics and I'll break a bit of that down. <clears throat> so, in order to accomplish the second paradigm, that is maintain average torque but increase cadence in order to increase power, if you're on a climb, you might have to shift to a smaller gear to do that. So if you're climbing a steep grade of whatever, we'll just say 8% at, we'll use the generic 300 watts, and your torque is 25 Newton meters average, and your cadence is in the low 70s, and you want to maintain your torque, but increase your cadence, you might shift up up to one bigger cog, which is one smaller gear. And your cadence might go up by five or six RPM, depending on the uh, number of teeth between the cogs. But five or six RPM might be typical. 
Um, this is a complaint for one by shifting systems is that the gaps are too big sometimes. But then you might be able to maintain the same amount of torque, that is 25 Newton meters, the same power, 300 watts, but your cadence might go up to, you know, maybe low 80s or high 70s. So that would be an example of that, right? So we see, we see how these three parameters, well, really two parameters can be manipulated in three different outcomes, three different permutations. <clears throat> in order to do both at once, that is lift, increase power by both increasing cadence and torque, the best example of this happening is on a track bike. Because there's no shifting on a track bike, you've got one gear. So if you want to go faster, you really have no choice but to push harder and also pedal faster. Because as soon as you push harder, the bike's going to accelerate because all velodromes are flat unless you're riding up the banking. Well, all the ones I've ridden on anyway, I guess there is that figure eight one that somebody made. That's super cool. I never got to ride that. But all velodromes are flat. So when you push harder on the pedal, the bike's gonna accelerate. And because you can't shift, then your cadence will increase also. And so in order to continue to increase your power from baseline, you would pedal both harder and faster, right? That should be pretty obvious too. The same thing applies on a road bike on the flats. Uh, you know, if you're riding along at 30 kilometers an hour and you decide you wanna to try to go 45 kilometers an hour and you don't shift, well, you're gonna to have to pedal quite a bit harder and quite a bit faster to increase your speed by 45 kilometers an hour. And of course, unless you suddenly got a tailwind, that would mean an increase in power, right? So a point on all this, I think one of the reasons it's really important to discuss cadence and understand it conceptually is because it's fair to say that most riders aren't really aware of how increasing the rate of force delivery or cadence, the speed of the foot, can increase power. Most riders simply associate pushing harder on the pedals with going faster and making more, more power. They associate torque with power directly. And there of course is a relationship there, but it's not without, you can't look at the relationship of torque and power without considering cadence. Now what's ironic about this is that some head units display torque. Um, I'm looking at my Wahoo right now, actually. And at the moment, I'm doing a whopping 13 and a half Newton meters of torque at, I'm not going very fast right now, I'm doing 109 watts at about 85, I'm floating around 85 to 90 RPM. And my heart rate is uh, 105 beats a minute, in case you were wondering. So, most riders associate pushing harder with making more power. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a bad way to, to ride a bike or to be competitive or try to go faster, enjoy cycling. However, in order to be the most multi-dimensional cyclist you can, uh, we would argue that you ought to be able to make power in different ways. One of them being to push harder on the pedals and another being to push faster, make higher cadence. And when you can do both, 
then you've got an advantage because if you're really pigeonholed into only making power by pushing harder, well, what happens when you run out of gears? Which can happen. And in particular, riders who tend to make force as their go-to method of producing more power, those riders can run out of gears because they tend to live in a very low cadence world. And so what happens when you get in a tailwind? And you're in a peloton and the peloton's moving at 65K an hour. You've gotta be forced to pedal quickly to respond to that kind of speed. What happens on descents when you are sprinting out of a corner to catch up to a rider who just went through a corner faster than you did? Or conversely, you wanna apply pressure to the riders who are following you on the descent. So you're railing corners and then sprinting out of them. But if you're horrible at pedaling at 112 RPM or higher, you're gonna be really limited in that situation, right? Also consider that in a Peloton, there's a big accordion effect, right? So when a rider or riders accelerate at the beginning of the group, the head of the Peloton, that acceleration gets magnified as it travels down the group, if the group is spread out. And so that acceleration, even though someone may change the pace from 50 to 57 kilometers an hour at the front of a group, which is a very big acceleration that requires a lot of strength in most conditions, by the time it gets to the 40th or 60th rider, who are 30 or 40 riders back, because maybe, maybe the field isn't completely single file, but mostly, then the wave gets exacerbated like an accordion. That's why it's called the accordion effect, right? And this is like a tube-like action, which is the most fundamental movement pattern of organisms like worms to bring in a really obtuse concept. This is how Peloton moves a lot of the times. And these waves of, of force, or not force, but waves of, of motion travel through the peloton, but they, they grow and they amplify. So by the time you get 40 or 50 riders back, now the acceleration, the baseline speed may have been the same. You may have been going 50K an hour, but you might have to hit 62 or 65K to avoid being gapped, right? And that requires a big acceleration and probably some very high cadence pedaling. <clears throat> in most scenarios. Sorry if I'm a little congested. You know why. So being a rider who can maintain or who can make power with a lot of foot speed and supple pedaling motion is invaluable to someone who wants to be a cyclist capable of riding in different terrains and in different physical environments. You know, we're always, we're always slaves to physics we cyclists and as we ride our bikes we've got momentum and inertia and wind and changing conditions and conditions of the pavement or the surface the gravel whatever you're riding on and all these things impact our speed of course aerodynamics coefficient of friction coefficient of rolling resistance you know all the friction of all our bearings and chains and all those gizmos a lot of that's been really dialed and refined but we still have to fight it we fight, so to speak, these forces to move forward. I mean, really, we're not fighting anyone. We're just, we're just moving, but it feels like a fight. Hence the term pedal and anger.
So maybe we're just fighting each other. Maybe we're really fighting ourselves. Who are you fighting when you ride a bike? Are you fighting someone? Why are you fighting them? Or are you running from someone? Who are you running from? Philosophical left turn. Okay, so let's unpack the physics briefly of climbing a hill and why it's different than on the flats and, and why we care and how it impacts cadence. So when we're climbing, well, let's start with the flats. When we're on the flats, we accelerate the bike initially from our stop sign or our stoplight or our driveway. And we get the thing going. And then we have momentum, right? Momentum of the system, the rider and the bike. And this momentum tends to keep this system going. You know, this is pretty obvious if you think about it. If you ride on a really flat road with no wind, you can kind of get the bike going pretty well. And then it requires relatively little effort to keep it going at a pretty good speed. Now, pretty good speed is a very loosely defined term. I mean, depends if you're trying to go 55K an hour or 18K an hour. But most people can go 18K an hour on a modern road bike very easily. Very few watts, right? Even 25K an hour is pretty easy most of the time on a flat road with no wind and good pavement, right? So bicycles are, this is what's cool about bicycles. They're such marvelously efficient converters of our metabolic energy into mechanical energy. Converters of metabolism, the assimilation of oxygen, fat and carbohydrates and a tiny bit of protein into forward momentum speed. I think that's pretty cool. So when we're riding on the flats, we have momentum and inertia are helping us, right? However, and gravity, gravity's not really helping us, but it's not harming us nearly as much. It's pulling us into the center of the earth, but on a flat surface, that doesn't matter. But as soon as we go uphill, now, even if we're riding on a climb of a steady grade at a steady speed, we're technically accelerating. We're accelerating because the force of gravity is an acceleratory force. It's accelerating us towards the surface of the earth. It's just fortunately for us, most of the time, the surface of the earth is stronger than that force, so we don't actually fall into it. Although every once in a while you have things like sinkholes. Thanks, fracking. So if we, when we climb a hill, even at constant speed, we're accelerating away from the center of the earth because we're gaining altitude, right? Sorry, we're gaining elevation. Wrong word. Hopefully I got that right earlier. I think I did. Altitude is your, your location relative to the atmospheric height, if I've got this correct. Elevation is actually what you do when you change your surface, your distance from the center of the earth while remaining on the surface of the earth, right? So uh, if any physicists are listening to this and I screw something up, please feel free to correct my terminology. I'm doing the best I can to be as accurate as possible. My dad was an astrogeophysicist, so I owe it to him to try to know at least a tiny bit about what I'm talking about, you know, as far as bike dork world. So when we're on the flats, we have 
momentum and inertia assisting us moving forward. As soon as we go up a hill, these actually fight against us. And our dead spots and our pedal stroke become magnified as a result. What do I mean by dead spots? I mean, normally a dead spot is the top of the pedal stroke or the bottom, bottom dead center, which is about 530, or top dead center, which is between 1130 and 12, right? And you can probably even hear it a little bit in my pedal stroke right now. The boom, 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 boom. That is the weight of my legs falling on the pedals and me pushing down a little harder than I'm doing the other things. And so we hear that increase in pressure on the tire tread is what we're hearing. There's a little texture to these tires and we're hearing it on the rollers. So when we go on a climb, when we ride up a climb on a grade, our dead spots become magnified and our cadence drops. And so if you have a crappy pedal stroke or your technique doesn't change and your pedal stroke is very choppy, meaning very, it has a very high peak during the power phase, which is a very exacerbated boom, 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 boom. Then on a steep grade, your bike's gonna accelerate forward on every, on the peak of every power phase, power stroke. And then it's going to decelerate during the dead spots. And this is, there's a point when this becomes very inefficient because you're accelerating the bike over and over again. You're kind of seesawing your way up the climb almost, if you can visualize that. So we need to have some smoothing of the, the dead spots on the power phase. We have to. And riders who climb a lot start to figure this out, probably not consciously in most cases. Um, how I think about it is competitive situations force the refinement of rider's technique because we have to think about this experientially. This is what happens. You're riding on a climb next to your friend, your riding compatriot, your colleague, your frenemy, whatever. And he or she begins to half wheel you a bit and you don't want to get half wheeled or drop. So you match the pace and you meet their pace. And if your bike is surging forward on every pedal stroke and you feel that on some level, you're going to start to intuit that that's not efficient. And riders will find a way when they're paying attention to solve the equation and make their stroke a little smoother. We can sense this, especially on a steep climb when the bike's really bobbing. We sense this. So this is how competitive situations help us refine our technique, right? Now, maybe riders sense it, but they can't figure out what to do about it. They try different things and nothing seems to work and their pedal stroke is still really choppy. That could be because their myofascial system is hopelessly tight and calcified and they're just gonna struggle to make smooth power or they're horrendously inflexible and so they really don't have a great hip hinge. So they're gonna struggle to make smooth power on the bike with supple muscle. That's possible. It's also possible their bike setup is just in the wrong zip code, saddles way too high or way too far forward. Those are both things that would exacerbate dead spots on, pedal, on climbs, in my opinion, for most riders. So 
you might try to solve the equation but be, un be unable to. And if this is you, then that's a clue that you need to dig a little deeper on your bike fit or your own function, right? So the inverse is true also, the, the converse will say, which is that if someone rides only on the flats, well, flat pedaling, sorry, let me rephrase that. Riding on flat terrain actually camouflages dead spots in your pedal stroke, right? If climbing exacerbates them and illuminates them, well, riding on the flats makes things worse. Why? Because momentum and inertia both camouflage dead spots because you can ride down the road and ax chop the pedals. You've heard me say this before probably if you've listened to some of my other pods with pretty bad technique, a very spiky pedal stroke, a very peaky pedal stroke with too much of a differential between your dead spot and your peak power and the, in the power phase of any given pedal stroke. That's how I would define it. And the bike, you can still produce quite a bit of speed and go pretty fast. And that's because bicycles are such good converters of our metabolic energy into mechanical energy. But that doesn't excuse poor technique. And I've heard quite a few sports scientists talk recently about how technique doesn't really matter in cycling. And I'm going to give them all the benefit of the doubt and just assume that what they really mean is that it matters less than in sports like swimming or cross-country skiing. And that's perhaps true. But I also don't think we have a good way to measure that. You know, most sports physiologists think about efficiency and they're talking about the amount of oxygen used to produce a given power. The problem with that is that it's oxygen based and it's ignoring the glycolytic system, the anaerobic system, right? And so when we have someone who makes a better force angle on the pedals or a more efficient, efficient use of their leverage on the pedals, that may not show up in aerobic metabolism because aerobic metabolism, even though it can be maximal, it may not be, how do I phrase this? It doesn't put us in a box enough to highlight the difference, but that doesn't mean the difference is non-trivial because most bike races are won in anaerobic moments. You know, Andy Coggan famously said once, it's an aerobic sport, damn it, and he wasn't wrong. But bike races aren't won aerobically most of the time. They're won in anaerobic moments. So if you're completely ignoring the glycolytic contribution to race winning, in my opinion, you're missing a big part of the picture. Which is not to say the aerobic system isn't extremely important in competitive cycling. Of course it is, but okay. Hopefully those little flats and hills are, examples are clear. Um, so if we expand that discussion though for a moment and think about how the types of terrain you have to work with, the discussion becomes quite interesting. If you live in a very, very flat place like Houston or Florida, I mean, parts of Houston and Florida, most of Houston, I think. And you ride there a lot. You might have a pretty 
you might have a pretty peaky pedal stroke, a pretty arguably choppy pedal stroke, and you may never know it. Then you go to Colorado or some other state, California, a state with long climbs, and California may be the better example because we've got more sea level climbing there. And you do a climb at sea level and you get shelled. And your conclusion is, well, I suck at climbing because I live in a flat place. And that's probably a reasonable conclusion, but we can also look a little deeper. Why? Well, if you're required to make force over a bigger percentage of the pedal stroke during the power phase, and ideally you would reduce some of your dead spots when climbing, and you're untrained to do that, well, you know, joint angle dictates muscle function, and also training and sport-specific angles gives you sport-specific strength, right? Or the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands. So what am I getting at? If you never have to push hard across the top of the stroke starting at 12 o'clock on a steep climb, then when you go to do it, you're gonna get a lot of local fiber fatigue, and you're gonna crap out early. That doesn't mean you can't be a good climber. It just means you're untrained for that demands of that event. Or it might mean that it's not possible for you to meet the demands of that event because your bike setup was off, but you never really realized it because you spend most of your time riding on flat terrain, right? So things to think about. Also, if somebody lives on flat terrain and they ride the track a lot, ride a lot of fixed gear, Fixed gear riding also camouflages dead spots. Why? Well, simply because, because the rear wheel is driven by forward motion, it will push your foot through a spot where you're not applying positive torque to the pedals. So it's a weird contradiction. People often assume that trackies have really good pedal strokes. Jeff Broker's study in uh, 96, or for Project 96, I should say. I don't know what year it was actually done. Proved this a million years ago. Trackies actually have some of the worst pedal strokes. Um, they stomp on the pedals a lot of the times. And what's confusing about that is trackies have to ride with a very high cadence. You know, you're finishing a sprint or a points race, you're sprinting at uh, anywhere from 130 to 150 RPM. You know, it, by modern day standards, it used to be much higher. Match sprints and kilos used to be one at crazy cadences, 160, 170, 180 RPM. Now people are using bigger gears, but that used to be considered part of the demands of the event. And when I raced six days in Europe, most of the time I rode an 89 inch gear, which was a 5316. And that's not a huge gear. We were doing Madison's of 50 kilometer distance. Where we were averaging between 48 and 53K an hour. So when you do the math on that, that means most of the time when I'm actually in the Peloton racing, not on relief, I'm riding at between 115 and 125 RPM average, right? And I've done World Cup points races where I've averaged 118, 119 RPM with sprints at 140 to 150. That was common. That was in a 94 or 95 inch gear, which again is small by today's standards. Gears have gotten a lot bigger since, since I raced at that level. But you know, the older I am, the faster I was. Nobody does it like we used to.
We used to race track in the snow. So, with no shoes. And the tracks were uphill. So track is a confusing one because it requires very, very high cadences, which do require supple muscle. Very high turnover. However, it also fosters a poor pedal stroke technique. And in particular, riders will lose leg strength when they ride a lot of track in small gears, right? I mean, that's not surprising to hear that statement, but I think people don't always really consider it. So, you know, when you're riding a lot of track, you've got to complement that with some high torque, low cadence work. In my opinion, it works well, or strength in the gym. SFR, you might call it, which stands for something obtuse in Italian, which means 40 RPM, basically which means Little Island with a big volcano on it. What movie is that from? There's your movie trivia for the day. Someone write me on Instagram and tell me what movie that's from. Little Island with a big volcano on it. Okay, so let's talk a bit about how people can make cadence errors, right? Um, when JV and I were racing together in Colorado as juniors, doing our thing. There was a, a rider who's no longer cycling to my knowledge. I think he grew up to become a cop, lives in Fort Collins. Uh, his first name's Greg. I won't list his, list his last name because who knows if he wants to be on my podcast or not. But Greg was unusual because um, in case you didn't know, I'm, I'm old as dirt in cycling world. Um, I'll be 50 this year. Yeah, 50. And so we're talking 1988, 1989, 1990. Those were my three years as a junior before I turned into a senior and became a pumpkin, uh, otherwise known as a meat popsicle, and got smashed for about five years before I won a race. And we, um, we used to do what most juniors did, we being Jonathan and I. We would race in the gears that were commonly accepted. Uh, well, Jonathan almost did. So back then, drivetrains were two by eight or two by nine, and common gear ratios were, for most of my young pro career and in juniors, were uh, 39 chainring, 53 was the big chainring, and the gears were uh, 12 to 21. If you were on a climbing day, you went to a 12-23. If you were kind of soft, you rode a 12-25. Now we used to do the same exact hills that I climbed today and race up them. Now I'm sure I was faster back then, um, but man, I would never go up Magnolia or Flag, Super Flagstaff or any of our local climbs, which are about a half hour long each, depending, at really quite steep gradients. I would never do those in those gears now. It'd just be miserable. So now I've got a bike with a semi-compact 3652, and I've commonly got a 28 or a 30 in the back. And that's quite pleasant. I mean, I could still go plenty fast. And it's not like I'm spinning at a 98 RPM up the thing either. Again, I'm probably not going as fast as I was back then. But Greg, our racing colleague, was smart enough to source a mountain bike cassette and somehow get it on his road bike. I don't know how he did that. Some sort of derailleur wizardry, which didn't exist back then. And so he's riding around with his pizza pie plate on his bike but he used it and he spun like crazy relative to us. 
And the thing was, he was about as good of a climber as JV on any given day, but way faster to the line. So Jonathan got second place to Greg quite a bit. And who knows, if Greg had the same gears as JV, Jonathan probably would have dropped him. I honestly think those gearing, the smaller gears, help Greg survive and make it up the climb on JV's wheel, and then could light him up in the sprint. And it's a good example of how Greg was way ahead of his time. And we just thought he was a nut job. I never really gave it much credit, although we did notice it. And it wasn't until years later that I really started to look at data in the SRM and, you know, pick apart things more. And I really figured out that I personally am a very torque limited rider, meaning I can be within a certain peer group in a selective race, right? Whatever the group that is, the first group or second group or third group or fifth group. And when the conditions change, I would be stronger or weaker. And any time cadence got to about the mid 70s or lower, I was one of the weakest guys in the group if not getting dropped, meaning losing a group, going from the third group to the fourth group or whatever. But then as soon as the train flattened out again, I was suddenly one of the stronger riders in the group. And over a lot of racing and a lot of experimentation, I began to realize that I'm just a torque limited rider, meaning when my legs are conditioned to make high torque, low cadence efforts, then I'm sort of plugging one of the holes in my armor. But speed was never really an issue for me. I could always jump in a flat race and pedal quickly, pretty much off the couch, right? And this is just my profile. And I think for me, I was pretty lopsided in that profile. Like speed was almost never an issue. And anytime I wasn't in tip top shape, torque was likely to be a limiter. So the conclusion over time was, I should basically always be training torque to make my muscles stronger. That is to say, to handle more continuous high fiber muscle tension, high muscle fiber tension, and also to generate more force while pedaling. And if I was successful in my training to accomplish those tasks, then I went pretty well and most things kind of worked out, at least within the capacity of what I could do. But if I neglected to train force, I sucked. Because you can only fake so many races with speed, right? I mean, dead flat races, sure. Crits and whatnot, I could fake those. Uh, points race, I could fake that to a degree, but Man, as soon as it got really torquey, I was out the back, unless I was really quite fit. So what's my point here? I'm saying the ultimate rule about being an athlete, the ultimate rule, the single most important guiding principle of athleticism is to know thyself, to learn what your own limits are, learn your own physiology, have an innate intuitive understanding of what you can accomplish and then constantly push the boundary on that. That is athletics. And this is where people get confused because they assume that they're defined by their power numbers. But that is just crap. Those numbers are just there to support or refine your intuition and teach you more about yourself. That's what these devices are for. So when you know yourself, then you can make educated choices about your training and you can also understand or craft rather a deeper level of knowledge about your own riding. And you can begin to put together pieces like, hmm, 
every time my cadence drops below 82 RPM, I suck, <laughs> right? Independent of how hard we're going. Or, you know, obviously it would be magnified the harder you're going, I'll say it that way. And so then anytime you're going hard up a steep climb can become a rate limiting factor. So how do we fix that problem? Well, we choose smaller gears if possible. We consider changing event goals, but also train to meet the demands of your event. Train to be able to handle high levels of force. And I'll make one really important point on this. That doesn't mean always just making your legs stronger. In fact, most of the time it means first making your core and hips stronger and then your legs will be stronger as a result. Because if you're pushing really hard with strong quads and calves and even glutes, but your hips aren't stable and your core is not working right, it won't matter. It's like adding horsepower to a muscle car, but not upgrading the suspension. You're gonna go super fast in a straight line, but as soon as you have to turn, you're screwed. You're gonna go right off a cliff. Right, or Paul's way of saying this, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Best expression of all times. It said so in the Geneva Convention. So know yourself is the essence of understanding how to use your gears. If you're a rider that associates making more power with pushing harder, then if you're smart, you're gonna train at times to force yourself to work at high cadences so that you can become more multidimensional, right? So that you can survive the peloton in different conditions and then use your strength at the right moment. It's the old adage, train your weaknesses, raise your strengths. Or like Neil Henderson says, weaponize your strength, which is also a good, happy little term. I like that one, so I borrowed it. Thanks, Neil. So, on the other hand, if you're a rider like me who gravitates towards races that are speed oriented, you'll know this if you can jump into a crit, even when you're pretty out of shape and still kind of mess people up or at least play a role in the race or maybe just not get dropped. But if you jump in a hilly road race off the couch, you just get shelled, right? That means that I'm not saying you have to win stuff with your strength. What I'm saying is look relative to you where your best chance for success is and performance is relative to your peer group. That's how you begin to understand your own limits, right? And so if speed is, comes easily to you, then you maybe don't need as much time doing three by 10 at 110 RPM to build that efficiency, that aerobic efficiency and that fiber fatigue, but while pedaling at a very quick, supple rate. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you need more force training, more core work. And to make sure your breathing is right, because if you have a breathing dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. There's your song for the day. If your breathing sucks, if you can't use your diaphragm, then your core won't serve you. I hope you like that. On the topic of knowing thyself, I'm riding rollers right now and I got a mirror in front of me. I say this all the time during my fit sessions. I am a huge fan of narcissism when it comes to indoor exercise. To know yourself is to see yourself. 
and by extension, to see yourself is to film yourself. Every single one of you space monkeys owns a supercomputer in your pocket-sized pocket hole. So break that puppy out and use the old slow-mo and film yourself riding on the trainer, or better yet, on the rollers. Film yourself doing your core. What do you see? What do you see? Do you see an increased pattern of lumbar lordosis? Are you unable to contract your deep lower abs when you're doing a forward ball roll or a plank? Are your shoulders up by your ears during a plank? Are they up by your ears when you're riding your bike all the time? Is your spine flexed excessively? Is your sacrum near vertical when you're riding? These are clues that tell you about your function and they start to be able to help you figure out who you are. So to know yourself is to see yourself. Right now I'm watching my feet in the mirror and I'm looking at my knee tracking because all of you know that we don't coach people to track with their knees grazing the top tube, right? And all of you also know that we want a flat or close to flat foot during as much of the pedal stroke as possible. And that ankling is an Italian wives tale that needs to be assassinated. Very good. Oh, I had one other bit to share with you. And now I think it's flown off into the ethernet of my brain. Hmm. Well, in any case, I hope you found this Kins primer somewhat useful and we outlined some good concepts, hopefully without butchering too much physics. Um, you know, I did some, some Googling and researches to try to figure out what all this means. And uh, hopefully I did that well enough to talk with some level of expertise without making a clown out of myself. But thank you for listening. If you have comments, please let me know. Also be aware, I'm going to post a pretty in-depth article on this topic on my website. Um, this is going to be a new thing. I'm going to throw down an article for each podcast I do in an effort to help people understand more of what I'm trying to teach in a way that's constructive for them. And some people like podcasts and some don't. And some like to read and some don't and all the above. I'm also going to be making some artwork with some of my podcasts. And this goes to, we'll say, a bit of my own life evolution. I used to be an artist when I was a kid. I used to draw a lot, paint a lot. It was a really big part of my life. And that's a part that has largely been left behind, mostly because of competitive cycling. And now it's time to rekindle that. And when I have these types of discussions with myself or with guests or visions or I have concepts I want to explain to people, I'm a highly, highly visual musical person. There always is music in my head and there's always graphics and pictures and visual explanations for what I'm trying to get across. And recently I just had a simple intuition that I need to get these out of my brain parts and explore my mind movies, project them into the world, because it'll help me be a healthier human. It'll help me teach the concepts I want to teach. And maybe it'll be entertaining for you too, and also instructive for you. Because if you see what I draw, that helps me get the idea across. So I'm gonna post an article on my site 
That's colbypierce.com in case you didn't know. Um, and I'm going to post some artwork to go along with it. My website is kind of a duct tape MacGyver piece of junk right now. But I'm going to be doing some work on it to bring it up to speed. Make it a little more palatable, a little better resource for people. That's the goal. Thanks, everyone. I love you. I'm uh, grateful to be alive because not everyone who got COVID is. So go hug your family and take care of yourself. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.